The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that the Guild provides here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today's episode features an exploration of Wagner's Goethe-Demerung, concluding our Talking About Opera lectures exploring Wagner's Ring Cycle. I personally am very excited to see how this epic drama comes to an end, so without any further delay, I will turn things over to former Met Opera radio broadcast host Peter Allen. There is probably no more controversial figure in all of art than Richard Wagner. The great novelist Leo Tolstoy denounced Wagner's Der Ring des Nibelungen, calling it a work of counterfeit art. Tolstoy was considered by Nobel Prize author Romain Rolland one of the two sons of his universe. The other was Wagner. Said Roland, I would die for Mozart. For Wagner, I would kill. Less bloodthirsty and more meaningful are the remarks of composer-conductor Pierre Boulez. Without Wagner's works, quote, the musical language as we know it today is simply unthinkable. Boulez adds, if we think of Wagner's accomplishment, we feel that a genius of such compass of such quality, such willpower and vitality, should inevitably give rise to spectacular results. This is Peter Allen talking about the ring, which is hardly the least of those spectacular results. In this series, produced by the Metropolitan Opera Guild, we have now come to the ring's fourth and final stage work, Goethe-Demerung, Twilight of the Gods, which the venerable Wagner scholar Ernest Newman called, in terms of orchestral splendor, the most wonderful of all his works. But creating the librettos of the ring was a wonderful feat in itself. Consider first the fact that he started out to write a single opera, but found himself drawn into creating the mighty cycle of four works that has long been the supreme challenge of the opera theater. Consider that that one opera was to center on Siegfried, the hero of the great medieval German epic, the Nibelungenlied, but with a change of four works, Wagner drew increasingly on other sources that often differed from each other in important detail. Not only that, but he wrote the four librettos to an appreciable degree in backward sequence. That first libretto, which he called The Death of Siegfried, became the last of the cycle and was retitled Goethe-Demerung. In addition, as he wrote the librettos over a period of four years, he greatly admired the philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach, known for his optimism. But then, while composing the music, he was deeply stirred by the philosophy of Arthur Schopenhauer, famous for his pessimism. Finally, and perhaps most striking, even as he was composing, he reversed the basic theory about music with which he had begun the ring. In his book, Opera and Drama, which could almost be considered the blueprint of the ring, he had said, in effect, the music should serve the drama. But well before finishing the ring, he came to agree with Schopenhauer that music is unique and superior to the other arts. No small amount of energy has been expended 
debating the great riddle of the ring, the important question, why does it end with the downfall of the gods? The question is still being asked today, even though we have long had Wagner's answer in a letter to the friend who put the question. I believe, said Wagner, that at a good performance, even the most naive person will be in no doubt the necessity for the downfall of the gods arises out of our innermost feelings, as it does out of the feelings of the high god Wotan. And later in the same letter, Wagner wrote what to me seems most important, that only through the music does the meaning of the poem become clear even to him. Even before writing any of the four librettos, Wagner set down a brief but important outline of the story of the entire ring. He called it the Nibelungen myth as sketch for a drama. There are significant differences between that preliminary prose sketch and the librettos that came out of it. For instance, among the most memorable characters of the ring are the three lovely Rhine maidens. They don't exist in the preliminary prose sketch. When Wagner wrote that first libretto, The Death of Siegfried, he added three characters he called simply Waterwomen, Wasserfrauen. Then, when he went backwards to write Das Rheingold, the Waterwomen became the Rhine daughters or Rhine maidens and were available for an important new function. He begins the preliminary prose sketch, and I'm abbreviating a bit, from the womb of night and death. There sprang a race that lives in Nibelheim, like worms in a dead body. They rummaged through the bowels of the earth, searching for metals. The pure and noble Rheingold was seized from the river by Alberich, who made from it a ring that gave him power over all his race, the Nibelung dwarfs. Now, in the libretto of Das Rheingold, as distinct from the prose sketch, the ring is said to give its owner world power, not just power over the other Nibelung dwarfs. When the ring is taken from Alberich, he curses whoever might own it. Moreover, in the Rheingold libretto and not in the prose sketch, the magic needed to forge the ring can be won only by renouncing love. And in Das Rheingold, that secret is foolishly given away by the lovely Rhine maidens. Now that's a brief insight into Wagner's ingenuity as a dramatist. The Rhine maidens can also help us look at his innovations as a composer. One of the three Rhine maidens sings the very first word of the cycle as she happily swims around the rock that cradles the sleeping Rheingold, a nonsense word in a lullaby, the word Vaya, W-E-I-A, that will change later to other very meaningful words. Here is that nonsense word, Vaya. When the Rheingold awakens to a brilliant radiance, that happy two-note phrase becomes exultant. But still later, Wagner changes it completely. The nonsense word, via, becomes the real word, vea, meaning woe, and the two notes become the important motif of misery. Those two notes are often used by the orchestra to comment on the action on stage. And now we have come to another of the problems, but at the same time, one of the great pleasures of the ring, the large number of musical symbols Wagner created, the famous leitmotifs of the ring. Wagner uses them not only to comment on the action, but to build the very structure of the entire ring. But now let me repeat what I've said in each of these talks. 
A critic once wrote that it would take an extraordinary ear and memory to retain all the leitmotifs of the ring. Happily, as opera lovers can testify, it's not necessary to retain them all to gain a deep satisfaction from these operas. And also, happily, the pleasure deepens the more one hears them. One caution, although talking about leitmotifs at any length simply cannot be done without naming them, the names are sometimes too restricting and sometimes even debatable, partly because Wagner himself named only a few and partly because he used them with marvelous and meaningful flexibility. He did refer to the two-note motif that the Rhine maidens sing to the Rhinegold, suggesting that it would be interesting to trace his use of it through the entire ring. Barry Millington has done that in his book on Wagner and tells us the joyful variant, the via motif, is far outnumbered by the woeful variant, the vea motif, the motif of misery. The opening of Götterdämmerung strikingly recalls, with a slight variation, a supreme moment from the previous opera, Siegfried. In the last act of Siegfried, the hero fearlessly went through the circle of magic fire that surrounded the sleeping warrior maiden, the Valkyrie Brynhilde, and kissed her awake. Here is the music of her slow, ecstatic awakening. And here is the opening chord of Götterdämmerung, which is accompanied by the reminder of another awakening, the awakening of creation, when the Rhine River began to flow at the beginning of Das Rheingold. Prominent in the brief prelude to Götterdämmerung are the solemn three-note motif of fate, played by the brass, and the sinuous motif known as weaving, played by the strings. Heinrich Porges, the man who took notes for Wagner at rehearsals of the ring, called the motif of fate the tragic motto of Goethe-Demmerung. The three fates themselves, who are known in Nordic myth and in the ring as the three Norns, are on stage as the curtain slowly rises in darkness with only a distant glow of fire. They weave the golden rope of fate. They know the world's past, present, and future. The eldest sings of how she used to weave the rope at the great world ash tree, near a spring from which flowed the waters of wisdom. The god Wotan gave one of his eyes to drink from it, 
and he tore from the world ash tree a branch he carved for his spear. In time, the ash withered and the stream dried up. And now the first norn, as she weaves, hangs the rope of fate from a fir tree. She throws the rope to the second norn as she sings a short refrain that comes almost word for word from the Nordic myths. Do you know what will be? As she asks, we hear the motif of the Annunciation of Death, first heard like this in the Ring's second opera, Die Valkyrie. The second Norn sings that carved on Wotan's spear were treaties governing the world. A fearless hero, Siegfried, shattered the spear and Wotan commanded that the world ash tree be chopped down. Sing, sister, I tie the rope to a jagged rock and I throw it to you. Do you know what will be? The third Norn tells how the wood from the world ash tree is now piled high around the golden castle of the gods Valhalla. Wotan and all the gods and heroes are gathered there. When the wood burns, there will dawn the end of the eternal gods. The Norn's memory becomes confused as the rope becomes tangled. The sharp rock begins cutting it. It grows slack, and Norn pulls on it, and to their horror it tears apart. As they cry, it tore es riss. We hear the motif of Alberich's curse. <laughs> The three Norns proclaim the end of their eternal knowledge and descend forever to their mother, the earth goddess Erda. Day slowly dawns, and with it comes music of warmth and joy. We see now that the setting is the crag where Siegfried found Brynhilde. In a cave there, Brynhilde and Siegfried have been asleep. Since we last saw them at the end of the opera Siegfried, they have consummated their love, and Brynhilde has acquired an entirely new motif. And the youthful horn motif of Siegfried has become that of the mature hero. As they enter, Brynhilde joyously tells Siegfried she has given him all her wisdom and her strength and now is the time for the hero to seek new glory. The orchestra echoes Brynhilde with a the theme of heroic love. Siegfried gives Brynhilde, as a token of his love, the ring. 
She gives him her fearless horse, Grana, and they sing to each other what Tristan and Isolde sang to each other, but each is the other. The two are one. And so, with both feeling they are not truly being separated, Siegfried leaves Brynhilde, and the orchestra plays the propulsive medley of motifs known in the concert hall as Siegfried's Rhine Journey, at first cheerful, and then touched by a dark, sinister feeling. The once happy sound of the Rhine gold itself is transformed and joined to the motif of woe. All the previous action, beginning with the Norns, is the prologue to Götterdämmerung. Now, after the Rhine journey, we begin Act One, or as Ernest Newman has said, at this point begins the tragedy of the Twilight of the Gods. Yes, we are in the world of civilization, as bitterly ironic as that word will turn out to be. We are about to hear two new motifs, one representing the royal family of Gibichungs, in whose great hall on the banks of the Rhine most of the action will now take place. The short Gibichung theme has a distinct rhythmic pattern. That rhythm of the Gibichung motif is the same whether the music goes up or down. The other motif has only two notes, always falling. It's the motif of Hagen. Here it is repeated rapidly three times. The motifs of Hagen and the Gibichungs will be heard together when the curtain rises on the hall of the Gibichungs. Hagen is the villainous counterpart of Siegfried, just as the Nibelung dwarf, Alberich, is the villainous counterpart of the god Wotan. In fact, Hagen is the son of Alberich, who corrupted Hagen's mother with gold, and so conceived Hagen in his plan to recover the ring. Hagen's mother, who does not appear in the ring, also had a legitimate son and daughter, Hagen's half-brother, Gunther, the king of the Gibichungs, and Gunther's sister, Gutruna. With the first words of Act One, Gunther asks, Hear me, Hagen, is my reputation as king of the Gibichungs as high as it should be up and down the Rhine? Hagen replies that Gunther should be married to the noblest woman in the world, Brynhilde, and Gutruna, who is with them, should be married to the strongest of heroes, Siegfried. He tells how Siegfried slew the dragon to win the Nibelung treasure, but he does not mention that the ring is part of that treasure. Only Siegfried, he says, can brave the fire that guards Brynhilde. 
but he does not say Siegfried has already done that. However, he continues, there is a magic potion. And with that potion, Siegfried can be made to fall in love with Gutruna and then be persuaded to win Brynhilde for Gunther. One drink of that potion, and Siegfried will forget that he ever saw any woman before Gutruna. Gutruna is, to judge by her music, a beautiful woman. Gutruna and Gunther are now eager to meet Siegfried. Hagen says he will very likely come by in his quest for new glory. If you're wondering why Hagen knows so much that the others don't, we'll meet his informant at the beginning of Act Two. Now, even as they talk, a distant horn call is heard from the Rhine. Hagen goes to look and says excitedly a boat is coming with a man and a horse, and it must be Siegfried, for only he can so easily drive it against the current. Hagen calls to Siegfried to invite him ashore, and when he arrives, greets him with the words, Hail Siegfried, dear hero. But even before he says it, the curse motif blares out. It continues all through the greeting, followed by the soft motif of seduction, played by horn, then oboe, then cello. For a tense moment, they all stare at each other in silence. Then Siegfried asks, Which is Gunther? Far away on the Rhine, he has heard of him, and he offers a choice. Fight with me or be my friend. We hear the motif of friendship. Gunther offers his land, his people, and himself in pledge to Siegfried. Siegfried says he has only a sword to pledge, but Hagen asks about the Nibelung treasure. Siegfried says it slipped his mind as worthless. He left it lying in the dragon's cave. Did he take nothing? Siegfried points to the woven metal hanging from his belt, but he doesn't know what good it is. Hagen explains that it's the magical Tarnhelm. The Tarnhelm can change its wearer to any shape and transport him to any place in an instant. But did he take nothing else? Yes, a ring that a wonderful woman has, and Hagen whispers to himself the name of Brynhilde. Now, Gutruna offers Siegfried a drinking horn. He raises it to his lips, whispers to himself a toast 
to the memory of Brynhilde, drinks, and loses the memory of Brynhilde. He looks at Gutruna with what the score tells us is instantly inflamed passion. He calls her the loveliest of women, speaks of the sudden fire in his blood, seizes her hand, and offers the blushing Gutruna marriage. She catches a glance from Hagen, and with faltering steps, leaves without answering. Siegfried learns that fire keeps Gunther from the woman he wants, and as Gunther tells of the fire with a fire motif in the background, Siegfried echoes his words in astonishment, trying to recall something, but he fails. He offers to go through the fire for Gunther if he can have Gutruna. Gunther asks, How will you deceive Brynhilde? And the hitherto innocent Siegfried immediately answers he will change shapes with Gunther by the magic of the Tarnhelm. Gunther gladly agrees. He proposes an oath. Hagen brings wine. The two men prick their arms with their swords and hold them over the drinking horn. Siegfried is the first to swear blood brotherhood. He is followed by Gunther, whose oath is sealed in the orchestra by the motif of Hagen. The oath will be echoed powerfully later. Now it's followed by the motif of atonement. Perhaps punishment would be a better word. If a brother breaks the bond, if a friend betrays the trust, let the drops we have drunk stream strongly to atone. They drink, and Hagen splits the horn with his sword. Siegfried asks why did Hagen not take the oath? The reply, his cold sluggish blood does not flow nobly like theirs and would have spoiled the pledge. Gunther says, leave this joyless man, and Siegfried eagerly tells Gunther they'll depart at once. Gunther will wait one night in the boat and then bring home his wife. Gunther orders Hagen to guard the hall while they're gone, which he does with shield and spear in his powerful monologue, Hagen's Watch Song. His two-note motif... and the two-note motif of misery are interwoven repeatedly and ominously with those of the Ring, Siegfried, and more. As Hagen sings, the hero is bringing his own bride to Gunther, but to me, the Ring. Sail away happily, you joyful ones. Though you think him lowly, you are serving the Nibelung's son and we hear distorted fragments of Valhalla and Rheingold.
The curtain closes and we hear a sort of reverse Rhine journey, an extended example among the innumerable examples, large and small, of what Wagner himself called the secret of his musical form, the art of transition. We hear brooding, dark harmonies that never quite leave. But after a while, the clarinet recalls Brynhilde, And later we hear familiar Valkyrie sounds. At the curtain, Brynhilde is on the rocky crag where we left her, lovingly contemplating the ring. Soon she hears the stormy approach of her sister Valkyrie, Valtrauta. Brynhilde joyously wonders if Wotan has forgiven her and recounts to Valtrauta how she disobeyed Wotan by shielding Siegfried's father, Siegmund, because she knew it was Wotan's secret wish and how Wotan punished her by putting her to sleep on the rock, but relented and surrounded her with fire that only the bravest hero could penetrate. Has Valtrauta come to share her bliss? but Valtrauta has come in dread. In a long, passionately mournful narrative, she describes how Wotan and all the gods and heroes sit silent in Valhalla, the logs from the world ash piled high, the splinters of his spear in Wotan's hand, the terrified Valkyries at his knees. Early and often we hear the motif of Wotan's frustration. Since Wotan banished Brynhilde, the Valkyries no longer ride out to battle. The two notes of misery sound as Valtrauta says Wotan sent his two ravens flying for news. If the ravens brought good news, Wotan would smile for the last time. Valtrauta wept, and then to music of the utmost tenderness we hear how Wotan's stern look softened when he thought of Brynhilde as if in a dream, and with the word dream, trauma, come the two notes of the Rhine Maidens. Wotan whispered, if the ring were returned to the Rhine Maidens, God and the world would be redeemed from the curse. Valtrauta then stole away to Brynhilde to beg her to end the torture of the gods. Brynhilde does not understand and answers, accompanied by the motif of calamity called by some vengeance. With that motif repeatedly in the orchestra, she says, Valtrauta is confused. Her eyes are flashing. Her cheeks are pale. What do you want, wild one, from me? Oh, <laughs> 
on your hand. The ring, say both Waltrauter and the orchestra. And Brunhilde is amazed. Give back the token of Siegfried's love. To the motif of the renunciation of love, she sings she will never give up love. Rather, let Valhalla's splendor fall in ruins, cries Brunhilde, and a despairing Valtrauta rushes away in thunder and lightning. The clouds disappear, night descends, and the magic fire grows brighter. Brynhilde, with joy and wonder, hears Siegfried's horn. But when a stranger appears, joy turns to terror. has forced his way to me. The motif of the potion reminds us that Siegfried does not recognize Brunhilde, and the motif of the Tarnhelm is frequent, as he says in a deep voice that he is Gunther who will make her his wife by force if necessary. A terrified Brunhilde exclaims that now she understands the meaning of Wotan's punishment. Each syllable she utters is on a note of the motif of calamity. Siegfried rips the ring from her finger and orders her to the cave. Almost collapsing, she goes. But before he follows her, Siegfried, in his normal voice, says, his sword will keep him true to his oath of blood brotherhood. It will lie between him and Brynhilde. The orchestra quickly ends this momentous first act of Götterdämmerung. Early in Act Two, we'll hear again how Wotan is waiting in Valhalla for the end, waiting in fear. Earlier, Valtrauter had said, waiting in agony. But Wotan himself, in the third act of Siegfried, had said he looked forward to the end joyfully. The ambivalence will be recognized later by Brynhilde. It also, it seems to me, echoes Wagner's own ambivalence. Even while Wagner was in what might be considered the optimistic period of his life, even as early as the Flying Dutchman, the hero of that opera longed for death. Not only was there pessimism in the early Wagner, 
but there was also optimism in the later Wagner. For although he did remain deeply impressed by Schopenhauer's philosophy, well before finishing the music of the ring, he wrote of correcting Schopenhauer, correcting him by pointing out that the way to salvation is through love. Now, from love to hate in the prelude to Act Two. It begins with a motif of only one persistently repeated note, usually introduced with a snarl from the orchestra. The motif of Nibelung hatred, or Alberich's hatred. It's recalled now to open the prelude. And in the prelude, with the motif of hatred, and with those of Hagen and of misery, we hear what has been called the harshest music in all Wagner. All of Act Two takes place in front of the Gibichung Palace on the Rhine, and the curtain will rise on an eerie scene with Hagen still on watch, sitting in darkness. The stage directions say at first that he is asleep, but later they say he seems to be sleeping, but his eyes are open. Suddenly, a shaft of moonlight shows Alberich crouching in front of him. Are you asleep, Hagen, my son? Hagen answers, I hear you and he tells how he was born prematurely old and pale. I hate the happy and am never glad. Alberich answers, hate the happy, but love me and be strong, and we will defeat Wotan, who is waiting for the end in fear. To Hagen's question, who will inherit the eternal power? Alberich answers, you and I, and as he does so, there sounds the motif of murder. Despite Albrecht's passion, Hagen throughout this scene answers with trance-like calm. And when Albrecht asks him to swear to him to avenge him and win the ring, Hagen's reply is, I swear to myself. 
Gradually, Albrecht disappears from sight, and his voice dies away, calling, Be true, Hagen, my son, be true. The parallel is complete. Albrecht and Wotan, once dread antagonists, are now merely bystanders watching others settle the fate of the ring. With dawn, Siegfried arrives with the instant transportation of the Tarnhelm, and the music quickly becomes cheerful. Hagen summons Gutruna, and Siegfried tells them of winning Brunhilde, and then in the morning with the Tarnhelm changing shapes with Gunther, who is now following by boat with Brunhilde. Hagen sees a sail on the Rhine, and Gutruna bids him assemble the Gibichung vassals for the double wedding, while she goes to invite the Gibichung women. Siegfried gladly goes with her. Hagen sounds his cow horn. And summons the men to the motif of woe. And even to the word vea itself. The gentle motif of Gutruna becomes the vigorous wedding call played by the brass as Hagen calls for weapons, Waffen. Danger is here, he calls. The vassals come running from all directions with their own motif. They join in a chorus. Yes, a chorus which Wagner had forbidden when he wrote opera and drama, and which forces even staunch defenders of Wagner to agree with Shaw that this is a return to grand opera. But it is not always recognized that there is a dramatic reason for this chorus, which is revealed after a stirring choral climax. First, the men sing they have come with weapons ready to defend Gunther. They ask, who is attacking? When Hagen tells them Gunther is bringing home a bride, and they are to sacrifice animals and drink to the gods, they burst into laughter at this rare joke from Grim Hagen. And then they sing a mighty chorus of celebration. But Hagen's real point is a grim one. The seemingly useless weapons serve to give solemn weight to Hagen's final words, enough laughter, welcome Gunther's bride, be true to your lady, he does not say be true to your lord, and if she is wronged, be swift to revenge. With that, the boat approaches, the chorus sings a splendid, formal welcome, and Gunther steps ashore, leading a pale Brynhilde, who approaches with downcast eyes. Gutruna and Siegfried now return with the women of the court, but Brunhilde is unaware of them until she hears the two names, Gutrun und Siegfried. Gutrun und Siegfried. 
And at her reaction, everyone is aware that something is very wrong. She is astonished that Siegfried doesn't know her, and she cries out at the sight of the ring on Siegfried's finger. When Gunther fails to recognize it, she knows the truth and proclaims that it was Siegfried who took it from her. But he retorts that he took it from the dragon he killed. Brynhilde calls on the gods for vengeance on him who betrayed her and reveals that not Gunther but Siegfried is her husband and, she says, Forrest her love. Siegfried, tacitly admitting that it was he who came to her, asserts that he kept the sword between them, which Brynhilde vehemently denies. Siegfried consents to swear on a spear point, and Hagen offers his spear to Siegfried. The motif of calamity, or vengeance, precedes the spear oath, which is followed by the two notes of Hagen's motif. Bright spear, holy weapon, help my eternal oath. May I die by you if I have betrayed my brother. But as we hear the Valkyrie motif, Brynhilde tears Siegfried's hand from the spear and swears, beginning with the same words, swears that Siegfried has lied. Despite much controversy over the question years ago, and perhaps today as well, it's clear that Siegfried has sworn the truth. He did not betray Gunther, whereas Brunhilde, in her rage and pain at having been deceived and betrayed, lied when she said the sword had not been kept between Siegfried and her. But Siegfried reassures Gunther that with time, Brunhilde will be grateful although he whispers that he is sorry he deceived her so poorly. However, he says he is not interested in women's scolding, and he cheerfully invites everyone to join him in wedding celebrations. Gunther and Hagen are left alone with a tortured, brooding Brynhilde. We hear the motif of misery three times. The third time, it begins the motif of murder. And then, as Brynhilde sings, What devil's cunning lies hidden here? It begins the motif of calamity. Half to herself, she sings that the wisdom that might have solved the riddle she has given to Siegfried. And then she bursts out, Who will offer me a sword to cut my bonds? (laughs) 
She scorns Hagen's offer to avenge her against Siegfried, Hagen. One glance would frighten him. And she recalls with bitter irony that her magic now protects Siegfried in battle against any wounds. But since he would never fly from the enemy, she did not protect his back. And there, cries Hagen, my spear will strike. He turns to Gunther, who, to the motif of punishment or atonement, is torn by shame and disgrace. He begs Hagen for help. Help my honor. And he learns that there is no help but Siegfried's death, Siegfried's tot, since it is Siegfried who betrayed Gunther. Brunhilde cries out, all of you betrayed me, but, to a motif of murder, Siegfried must fall. Hagen adds to Gunther, with the ring, you will have enormous power. But Gunther asks, how can they face Gutruna if they kill her husband? Hagen says, They'll go hunting tomorrow, and Siegfried may be killed by a boar. A passionate trio dominated by the motifs of misery, atonement, and Nibelung hatred begins with the words, So shall it be. Siegfried must fall. So shall it Brunhilde and Gunther swear to the god Wotan that they will have vengeance. Hagen swears to Albrecht he will again be the lord of the ring. But festive music breaks in, the wedding party happily enters, Gutruna smiles, Brunhilde starts away, but Hagen forces her to Gunther, who takes her hand as the wedding call rings out in short-lived rejoicing. And so we reach the final intermission of the final opera of The Ring. Since Act Three is not a hard act to follow, but an impossible act to follow, let me say a partial farewell now. At the age of 67, Wagner said, and I'm quoting from a biography of Vincenzo Bellini by Herbert Weinstock, Wagner said, Bellini is one of my predilections. His music is closely, intimately linked to the words. The music I hate is the vague, indeterminate music which laughs at the libretto and at the situation." Unquote. So, if I have emphasized the power of the music in these talks, I hope I have not misled newcomers to the ring. Let me urge you to get to know the words as well as possible. Yet, 
After all, music does have an overriding language of its own. A recent review of Cosi Fantute reads, I have never seen a Cosi that really captured its complex emotion. And the reviewer adds, as I try to say which emotions I mean, I realize that Mozart defined them more specifically than words can. Or take the world premiere in Paris of Alban Berg's Complete Lulu, an opera in which the heroine kills her greatest benefactor and is a powerful magnetic focus of evil for her many lovers. In the last short speech of the opera, one of her lovers, dying, calls her Lulu, my angel. A French reviewer asked, opera in memory of an angel? And he answered, yes, that is just what is said by the music itself. Lulu is the music, just as she is love. And let a modern composer be heard, the distinguished contemporary Roger Sessions. I believe, for nearly all composers, musical ideas have infinitely more substance, more specific meaning than any words by which they can be described." Unquote. And so, if Wagner's friend asked the question, why must the ring end as it does? And if Wagner answered, I believe that at a good performance, even the most naive spectator will be in no doubt it's difficult today, nearly 140 years after that answer, to contradict generations of spectators, naive or sophisticated, who have left performance after performance of the ring supremely satisfied. The true test of an opera, as Verdi agreed, is in the theater. Now to the final act of Götterdämmerung. It opens cheerfully for a few seconds. We soon hear the recognizable but now melancholy tune of the Rhine Maidens. And a lovely motif that could only be theirs and which they take over when the curtain rises. valley of the Rhine, with the Rhine maidens swimming on the surface, lamenting the loss of the gold, but expecting Siegfried. At the sound of his horn, they dive out of sight. But they reappear to tease him for grumbling. He has lost the bear he was hunting. What will you give us if we find him? That ring? No? Why are you so stingy? Does your wife beat you? And they laugh at him as they dive down again.
Siegfried takes the bait and calls them back to give them the ring. But now, faced with this momentous gesture, they laugh no longer. They warn him of the curse on the ring. He will be killed this very day if he does not give it to them. Siegfried says he would give it away for love, but not for threats. He values his life less than the lump of earth he picks up and throws away. The Rhine maidens call him a fool, Tor. But Wagner called Siegfried in a letter infinitely wise, for he knows the highest truth, that death is better than a life of fear. Nevertheless, the sisters become wildly excited and leave him, they say, for a proud woman who will give them a better hearing. Horns bring on the hunting party who want to know what Siegfried has caught. All I saw was three waterfowl who sang that I'd be killed today. Gunther shudders, and Hagen asks if it's true that Siegfried can understand the birds, which prompts Siegfried to tell the story of his youth, how the Nibelung dwarf, Mima, raised him, planning to get the ring and then kill him, how Siegfried killed the dragon, whose blood helped him understand the forest bird, whose song he echoes, The bird told him to take the ring and Tarnhelm and warned him of Mima, whom he killed. Gunther and the vassals listen with rapt attention. As Siegfried approaches his memory block, Hagen gives him a drink with a reverse potion, and Siegfried recalls how the bird told him of the sleeping Brynhilde whom he awakened to rapture with a kiss. Gunther is horrified. Wotan's two ravens fly by. Hagen asks if Siegfried can understand them. And when Siegfried turns to look, Hagen, to the horror of Gunther and the vassals, thrusts his spear, the spear of the oath, into Siegfried's back. Hagen, what have you done? Calmly, Grim Hagen says, I have avenged treachery, and he walks away. To the music of Brynhilde's awakening, the dying Siegfried calls her name. Wake up, open your eyes.
Who has locked you in sleep again? As he ecstatically recalls the memory of Brynhilde, Siegfried now, through music, becomes what Wagner conceived him to be, the man who never ceases to love. His last prophetic words are, Brynhild offers me greeting. And then... Brunhilde and Wotan are tragic characters, said Wagner, but not Siegfried because he is never aware of what is happening to him. A judgment that coming from Wagner is admirably objective and incontrovertibly right, except for the overwhelming argument of that music. Gunther and the grief-stricken vassals pick up Siegfried's body and in the moonlight begin his last Rhine journey, described by Donington as the great funeral march whose themes recall the hero's high ancestry and bright glory, but in a setting so dark that pride and grief mingle on equal terms. After the catharsis of the funeral music, the curtain rises on the moonlit hall of the Gibichungs where Gutruna enters, her music takes on a new intensity. She is alone longing for Siegfried and desperately apprehensive after bad dreams. Grana had neighed wildly and Brynhilde's laughter woke her. Was it Brynhilde she saw walk to the bank of the Rhine? The music reminds us of the Rhine maidens. Yes, her room is empty. Suddenly there come the music of woe and calamity and the distant voice of Hagen. Hagen is calling for torches. The booty of the hunt is arriving. He enters the hall and tells Gutruna Siegfried is coming. But I don't hear his horn. Hagen brutally answers, He will blow it no more. They are bringing her dead husband. The body is set down in the hall, and when Gutruna accuses Gunther of murder, he blames Hagen, who exalts to the music of the oath on the spear. Schlagen, ich hagen. 
Hagen claims the ring. Gunther claims it. They fight. Gunther is killed. Hagen cries out for the ring and reaches toward the hand of the dead hero, but the hand rises threateningly. The trumpet with the sword music and the strings with the music of Goethe Demerung somewhat redeem the device of a dead hand rising, and Wagner quickly shifts our attention with the appearance of Brunhilde slowly striding forward with a grandeur that Wagner described as that of an ancient German prophetess, reproaching all these who have betrayed her. Gutruna regrets the day Brunhilde came to spoil her happiness, but Brunhilde tells her she was merely Siegfried's mistress and to the music of the world's inheritance, proclaims that she alone was his true wife, to whom he swore eternal faith. <laughs> Gutruna curses Hagen for the potion that made Siegfried forget. She falls dying, as the score tells us, on the body of Gunther, and her music is joined by the motif of fate. Brynhilde, with solemn exaltation, orders great logs to be piled high on the bank of the Rhine as a funeral pyre for the dead hero. Bring his horse to follow me. With a background of fire music and Valkyrie music, she herself sings Siegfried's motif to the words, My own body longs to share the sacred honor of the hero. Younger vassals heap up the logs, and women cover them with flowers. Transfigured with tenderness, Brynhilde, to the motif of love's greeting, sings that the sight of Siegfried shines to her like pure sunlight. No one had ever been truer or falser than he. Do you know why that was? Oh, you gods, hear your guilt. It was your wish, Wotan, that he carried out, and he drew on himself your curse. He betrayed me that I might find wisdom. Brynhilde, in that wisdom, with an echo of the Rhine maidens, Valhalla, and need of the gods, bids the god rest. Rua, Rua do God.
Brynhilde now claims the ring as her heritage to return it with thanks for their good advice to the wise daughters of the Rhine. She bids the Rhine maidens, from my ashes, take what you desire, purified from the curse. She has placed the ring on her finger and seizes a flaming torch. You ravens, I heard the rustling of your wings, fly to Wotan with the news he wants and fears. And on the way, tell Loga, still flaming on my crag, to go to Valhalla, the end of the gods is dawning. So I throw this torch at Valhalla's glory. As the torch kindles the logs, she calls for Grana. Do you know where we're going? Your master lies there in the blazing fire. And as she says the words in blazing fire, im Feuerleuchtend, we hear for the first time since two operas ago this brief statement of the music that has always been called redemption. <laughs> but was recently shown to have been called by Wagner himself the theme of praise for Brynhilde and the motif of glorification for Brynhilde. It was she who was being described by Sieglinde when it was first heard in Act Three of Die Valkyra. final words after she mounts Grana fulfill the last words of the dying Siegfried. Your joyful wife greets you. Brynhilde and Grana leap into the burning pyre and Wagner's stage directions call for flame to fill the hall. The vassals crowd in terror toward the foreground. The Rhine overflows. The Rhine maidens swim to the pyre. Hagen cries away from the ring and rushes into the water. But the Rhine maidens seize him and pull him down. Flosshilde waves the ring in triumph. A great cloud of smoke rolls away, and we see far in the background Valhalla in flames, the gods and heroes still sitting silently until they're hidden by a final blaze of fire. Loga's music has been continuous, along with other motifs, culminating as the horns grandly recall Siegfried and the descending strings play Twilight of the Gods. The curtain falls and Goethe Emmerung and the entire cycle of the ring come to a close as the motif of redemption or Brynhilde's glory offers a final sublime benediction.
Thank you so much for listening to episode 46 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. This episode concludes our mini-series on Wagner's Ring Cycle, and we hope you have enjoyed our in-depth exploration of this beloved masterpiece. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.